Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of Mudville at the Movies. I'm one of your hosts, Nolan Rabine. And I'm Tony Brown. Nolan, how is your year at the cinema? I think my year at the cinema can largely be defined by the 10 movies I'm going to talk about today. No more talking about it. I've been hyping this up for a while. It's time to deliver, and I think we've got a pretty great episode for you guys today. We're starting you off with our top 10 first watches of 2023. And Tony, how did you approach making this list? Actually, hold on. Before we get to that, Nolan... What are first watches for people who don't know? So first watches are movies that are new to us. So you're not going to hear anything on this episode that was released in 2023. No Oppenheimer, no Killers of the Flower Moon. We're saving those for next week. These are movies that we watched either on our own for the first time or in a cinema with a number of other people at rep screenings or micro cinemas or what have you, you know, just movies that we experienced for the first time in 2023 that we are excited about and we want to talk about today. That's right. And rewatches don't count. Nope. Should we should we kick it off? I think we should. I'm going to list mine personally uh, in chronological order of when I watched them. Uh, I've got my first one here that I watched in the very first week of the year. And then we're going up towards uh, number 10, which I watched around Thanksgiving time. So I'm kind of doing this as I'd like to take the listener through a similar journey to how I experienced them myself. And it just seemed to me like the best way to do that. But uh, we're good to just list these off however we want to. Uh, And Tony, do you want to start us off with your first of these 10? The first of my 10, I'm kind of just shooting from the hip here, whatever order I want. And I'm going to be honest, this is probably my favorite movie of the year. Um, It's called Third World, Third World War, and it's directed by Julio Garcia Espinosa from Cuba. And why I like this movie a lot is that it kind of goes against the grain of all Western audience thought process and creative process of how to approach good art good performative art good cinema and uh what i mean by that is uh one of my favorite filmmakers his name is douglas sirk and he has this great quote that i kind of agree with and he says the moment you start to preach to your audience the moment you start to teach your audience of your point of view in that moment you're making a bad film And I think this idea of preaching and trying to teach your audience and tell you exactly what's on your mind and what to believe is really ingrained in Western audiences and creative people. And it's treated like the creative art gospel. Um, And it's something that I've always thought. It's something that I've been taught. And it's something that I've agreed with for a long time. And I think it's... A pretty solid rule. Um, But this movie, Third World, Third World War, it challenged me to expand my mind. And this movie serves as a great counter to that thought process of not teaching and preaching to your audience. And this counter thought uh, is called the imperfect cinema. 
and it's by Julio Garcia Espinoza, who directed the film. He wrote this manifesto called Towards an Imperfect Cinema. And basically what Espinoza argues is, is that if there is a problem in your society, like capitalism, colonialism, or imperialism, you should teach and shout about it at the top of your lungs. And to teach and share about collective struggle is to live. And that's why it's okay to make a film like that. So in this film, Third World, Third World War, it's made by the Department of Culture and Revolutionary Cuba, Castro's Cuba. And uh, we uh, have the director, Julio Garcia Espinoza, embedded with the Vietnamese as they fight Americans. Um, Espinoza narrates the film. And what I find great about it, too, is that it's not your average uh, anti-Vietnam War movie. You know, in America, we're inundated with lots of anti-Vietnam War films uh, like Apocalypse Now. What's your favorite anti-Vietnam War film, Nolan? Oh, boy. Oh, sheesh. I would say... I watched a number of them this year, actually, for the first time, and I didn't put any of them on this list. But you mentioned Apocalypse Now, and I was going to say, I feel like the problem with a lot of American Vietnam movies is that they really come from the lens of why the Vietnam War was bad for us and like how it affected Americans, which is certainly a, a valid point of view, but it's certainly not primary sin of what the Vietnam War was. So when you see films about it from other countries, particularly the countries impacted by it, um, I think it can certainly open your mind a lot as to how um, we perceive the war as Americans through our films, through our media and culture and through the news and how um, the atrocities that are committed overseas can be um, censored and presented to us in a way that um, will alter the natural response um, to seeing something like that. So, right, would, it's definitely watered down for Americans yeah, too. You know, so like I, I would hesitate to even pick uh, a Vietnam movie from America as like my favorite. In American Vietnam War films, it's like Vietnam was bad, it was wrong, all those things. And this isn't taking a shot at American anti-Vietnam War films. These They're all spectacular. Platoon, Apocalypse Now, you know, The Deer Hunter, um, Born on the Fourth of July, anything by First Oliver Blood. Stone, any interview with Oliver Stone. I've got is, an Oliver Stone on movie uh, coming up later on this. Yeah, we got an Oliver Stone movie coming up later. But, so from a western anti-vietnam war film you know it's like vietnam was bad it was wrong all those things but in third world the third world war it's cuba and what they're telling you is that we must destroy capitalism and imperialism and we need to do it now and this is the capitalist country the united states this is imperialism this is what they do to people, and we must do everything in our power to fight back. And so going back to this idea of imperfect cinema, you should teach and shout about these things at the top of your lungs, which is what Espinoza does 
in this film because to teach and share about a struggle uh, to destroy capitalism and imperialism and fight back is to live. And that what he argues an audience will still go for and identify this common struggle to live and to fight against these systems. And so this film is a lot like the Battle of the Algiers. You see a lot of different things going on throughout the film. One of the scenes that's sort of burned into my mind is a rice paddy farmer diffusing American munition bombs. Um, It's an insane scene. So it's uh, munition bombs, like those cluster bombs where they drop, but they don't necessarily explode. And then they're filled with all these little tiny bombs. You know what those are? It's just this harrowing scene and it's not acting it's a literal documentary uh, and you see this rice paddy farmer go out and he's explaining to the camera what exactly he does and how he picks up the cluster munition and how he handles it and how he puts it in like a basket of rice to sort of defuse these bombs um and it's like i said it's battle of the algiers except it's not a fictional film or a dramatic film based on real events it is a full-on documentary and i cannot recommend third world third world war enough i'm really glad that you brought all of this up right off the bat because i feel like so much of my 2023 through the movies has been defined by trying to break myself free from some of the traps that are inherently set in Hollywood cinema in particular, but just American movies as a whole. I watched a number of um, international movies this year that were super eye-opening for me in a number of ways. Uh, Z by Costa Gavras uh, just narrowly missed my list. I found that to be an incredible movie. And I'm glad that uh, we're just on like similar wavelengths there because that... I feel like so much of what you're talking about is what I've uh, I've wanted to show myself over the past year as well. Right. No, totally. And I mean, it kind of just goes back to that whole American centric way of consuming culture, consuming art and how we should make it. You know, uh, I, I'm always you know, we all have our preferences and we sh- it's important to be aware of them, but it's then also important to calibrate your mind to sort of break those preferences and really kind of expand where um, you're going and how you have a relationship with the art that you're taking in. And that's what I think we're going to do on this show. And that is so, a perfect segue into my first of my 10 best first watches of the year which is Local Legends uh, from 2013, directed by Charles Roxburgh. And I want to start here because a lot of my personal journey and how I saw film at the start of the year compared to the end can be traced to my discovery of Moturn Media, the work of Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh. Uh, They're independent filmmakers in Danvers, Massachusetts. And Woo! Shout out North Shore. (laughs) I didn't, yeah, no, I told you this. I didn't even know that you're from there, man. That's that's insane. Small world, right? Yeah, Um, and I'd never heard of them until till yesterday. Yeah, well, hey, that's that's what we're doing this this episode for. 
Uh, for over a decade, these guys have been producing some of the most high-concept and entertaining home movies ever made. In addition to Farley's incredible musical output in the band Moe's Haven, as well as his 50-song albums about every city and town in all 50 states, or his albums about just general toilet-related terms, among much, much else. Wait, hold on. He has the 50-song albums about every city and every state? Oh, yes. I gotta... Man, I, I'll, I'm I'll. i gonna give you the whole Matt Farley rundown off mic. What is You're he, James love Joyce? Uh, uh, basically, <laughs> but for this generation. Ultimately, I think it's difficult to summarize what they do, uh, and any interested participant should watch Local Legends immediately. Uh, and I say participants rather than audience because Farley puts his personal phone number on screen uh, and he allows you to call him Uh, he'll he'll pick up and say hey how are you it's Matt what do you think of the movie Uh, and if you review any film of his uh, he's sure to give you a shout out if you watch Matt's work it might take a moment to really understand and warm up to what it is he's doing but truly I mean this if you open your heart to the Moturn method it'll be one of the most rewarding and radicalizing cinematic experiences you'll ever have these are guys who get a bunch of good people together, non-professional actors, but who cares? And they shoot their movies for the price of a used car, and they have full creative control over everything they do. And now Farley and Roxburgh have been doing this for so long that they've built up a strong cult following, and their notoriety is seeming to multiply every year. Like, even in the year that I've been aware of these guys, I feel like they've grown so much. They put out two movies this year, Boston Johnny, which we did an episode about, and uh, Heard She Got Murdered, which we're doing an episode about just this weekend, so get ready for that. It's a little teaser. In an age where we can shoot movies on our phones, uh, it's very inspiring to see guys like this succeed at something so independent and heartfelt and uncorrupted. And it makes me wish that there were more people doing this, and it inspires me to want to do it myself. So I watched the vast majority of their films this year for the first time, but the one I'm picking is Local Legends because this is the one that shows the audience exactly what it is that Matt Farley does and how he does it, how Moturn Media came to be. And watching it in 2023, uh, 10 years after it came out, I'm watching it through a very different lens, one that would not exist if Farley hadn't found some additional uh, level of critical and audience consensus. Uh, And that alone is very inspiring when so much of the movie is about Farley and his friend Soup playing one-on-one pickup basketball and wondering how they can hire a scorekeeper for $10 to keep track of their stats. And that's something that I would do, you know, around that time too. So I felt very seen by this movie and uh, I also felt very inspired by it. And it's my first choice of the year. To kind of just make a film in a DIY sort of way is, you know, super inspiring. And again, it's all about just expanding your mind. And, you know, if you put so much heart and passion into what you do, you can make really cool and interesting things and in interesting ways. Absolutely. And that's exactly what what Matt's doing. Uh, And he's doing it his way. 
and like he makes himself open and and vulnerable to to criticism and yet like it doesn't really come and people have flocked to him and they have found enjoyment in his positivity and what he's created is is really something special what's your second movie here on, on your list Okay, my second movie on the list is Gentleman Jim, directed by Raoul Walsh from the United States in 1942. This movie is, in my opinion, the definition of a triumph. It's a shot of adrenaline from start to finish, and it's just an absolute all-out last crowd pleaser of a sports movie um and it stars famous hollywood studio action hero aaron flint errol flynn in the titular role of uh boxer jim corbett so who is jim corbett uh he is a famous boxer and he's famous for a few reasons he's famous because he's basically the first man to beat the man so like someone in a early prize fight between two heavyweights challenging the uh incumbent champion um this incumbent like it's an election (laughs) (laughs) you you know what i mean reigning Um, champion yeah so right the belt holder and uh the reigning champ yeah and so jim corbin beat uh john l sullivan And John L. Sullivan was also an Irish boxer, and he was one of the first big longtime heavyweight champions in the world, in the U.S. Um, He was the last bare-knuckle boxing champ uh, and one of the first glove champs. So this character, John L. Sullivan, uh, is the definition of old school. And so the two – so Jim Corbett is, you know, famous for – beating him and this film follows jim and his journey uh in boxing in san francisco in america at the turn of the 20th century and we kind of see these two characters uh john allen sullivan and jim corbett contrasting we're at the and jim kind of represents uh the change that's happening in the sport and uh, Errol Flynn plays it with so much ego and confidence. And he plays Jim Corbett, who is an example of the modern day athlete and boxer. And so, you know, we're starting to see, you know, the boxer as someone who trains every single day, uh, having to hobnob with wealthy patrons and fans racking up dough from fights and so uh, between these two characters is this battle between old school and new school um so that's the first thing and this film is just filled with uh you know a cocktail of all your favorite american themes and tropes um we explore in the film uh classism you know, Jim Corbett, Errol Flynn is from a humble lower lower class family. And, uh, you know, Jim has to rely on the patronage of uh, wealthy people. Um, and he has a massive ego. Um, he has to watch himself because he 
is so good at what he does, but he can't make the bourgeoisie and the aristocrats angry. And sometimes he does a good job checking himself. Other times, most of the time, he's not. <laughs> and so the aristocrats do get angry. And so you kind of have to ask yourself as an audience member throughout the film, you know, does gentleman Jim Corbett, does he fully integrate himself into the American aristocracy, even as a celebrity? And he starts... Uh, you know, climbing the ranks and getting nationwide notoriety for his boxing skill, or is he forever an outsider? So that whole class dynamic and sort of old school and new school are just two really potent themes uh, throughout the film. Um, and then another thing I just want to point out is that the director, Raul Walsh, is a favorite of mine, and he's a favorite of mine because he in my opinion, is super into ways to explore the psychosis of American people and just people in general, the psychosis of humanity. And he just does this. It's not really a like psycho thriller or psychodrama at all, but he'll just always find a way to leave a nugget of that in his work anywhere, whether it's like the primary driving force of a film or it's just, you know, scattered throughout. And he does this with Errol Flynn, Jim Corbett's family, um, and his sort of humble, lower-class-ish family, Irish immigrants as well. They're uh, a family of roughhousers. And so you see Jim and his brothers get into these frequent arguments, kind of like playing arguments that then erupt into fistfights. And so... They take the fights outside and it's settled in the family barns. And so, you know, they start arguing, it erupts into a fight. They take it outside. And as they rush outside and into the barn, the whole family rushes out. Someone shouts in the neighborhood, the Corbett's are at it again. And then the neighbors rush into the barn and everybody watches like a <laughs> boxing match. <laughs> and oh, then the that's brothers, incredible. Yeah. And then the brothers who are arguing, they like, you know, just kiss and make up and like pat each other on the back and like, let's do that again sometime, you know, <laughs> which is like, which is so bizarre. It's it's so fucking bizarre that and that it's just like a regular thing that this family does. They love to love. They love to rough house. They love to fight it out. And, uh, you know. They're just okay with it. And then as an audience member, we become okay with it, you know? So you you see Jim kind of coming up from this, uh, the character coming up from this, you know, rough house upbringing. And of course, he's the best fighter, but his brothers still take on the challenge uh, anyways. So yeah, I, I highly recommend this film. It's so much fun. It's such a joy. Uh, it's a great time capsule of America in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, a fantastic sports film. And one quick fun uh, cinema fact about this film, and it doesn't touch upon it, but I just read it as I was researching the film and uh, researching Jim Corbett. Did you know, Nolan, that Jim Corbett was like the first guy to film his fights. Oh my God. No, I didn't in full. So 
I try to, and as as we say in this podcast, if we ever talk about film history, I'll be hesitant to say the first to do blank. I'll usually say one of the first, and if we're talking about it, it means that you know there there's some sort of significance there in a wave of people who are probably doing the same thing at various times in the world. But it is true. So he literally would film full fights of his in 1897. Whoa, that was his first fight, which is considered like one of the first feature films. Um, and yeah, it's, and it's over an hour long. So I don't know where he got the film stock. I don't know how they figured it out. The camera doesn't move just a cool historical film fact. That's not explored in gentleman, Jim, but that's sort of Jim Corbett, the real life, Jim Corbett's contribution to the history of cinema. That's awesome, and I haven't seen this one yet, but you have sold me on it completely, and I will be watching it so soon. Um, That really sounds incredible, man. All right, so what's next on your film? So number two on my list is Simon Lang's What Time Is It There? And Let's go. Yeah. (laughs) And I think I'm going to be talking about directors a lot today because – so much of my 2023 was based on trying to have a stronger grasp on the career trajectories of a lot of my favorite directors. I did it towards the end of 2022 with Jean-Luc Godard after he passed away. And then that kind of put the idea in my head. And I started doing the same thing with uh, Claire Denis and Martin Scorsese and David Lynch, you know, clearing up a few of the blind spots there, but also just trying to see where they started, where they went, and um, what their preoccupations became as their career evolved. Uh, and one of the filmmakers that I decided to do this with was Simon Lang, uh, who I had seen a few of his movies already going into the year. Um, I watched Goodbye Dragon Inn a couple years ago. Uh, for Classic. Those, oh, it's amazing. For those who don't know, uh, that is size film about the um, exhibition of Dragon Inn, a film from 1967 by King Hu being shown at a theater in Taiwan, which is sparsely populated to say the least. It is a remarkable achievement in slow cinema. I remember it altering my conception of what a movie could be in real time. Uh, In particular, the long shot of three men pissing at a urinal while the film plays for just a couple audience members in the background. Goodbye Dragon Inn, probably the best known and most widely acclaimed of size films. Uh, At the time I watched it, it was having a bit of a moment in some of the circles that I try to keep close tabs on. Uh, Like the critic Nick Pinkerton has a really great book about it. And before I went through his whole filmography this year the other image from size career that i had experienced and had really stuck in my head um was this 15 minute shot in stray dogs that shows two people um under an overpass just staring at a piece of art and taking it in um 
interestingly enough, that is kind of what size filmmaking has become today, as he sort of seems to be more um, interested in art installations than in creating any sen- any sort of narrative cinema anymore. So it's certainly interesting that he did that uh, 10 years ago now. I don't know exactly what, what to make of it, but... In Stray Dogs, uh, the characters and the camera are both unflinching, uh, and I can't imagine what it must have been like to experience that in a theater in real time with no knowledge that it was coming. Just like this 15-minute shot of two people just staring forward. Uh, People must have started to lose their minds. Like, this year, I knocked out almost all of my my blind spots in size filmography, um, and it was difficult to pick just one, uh, because the hole and the river are just as worthy contenders as I saw both of those this year for the first time, too, and fell in love with those. I caught the river, too. Did you see these all in theaters or at home? Oh, no, I saw them at home. I wish I'd been able to see them in in theaters, and I would love to do that one day. The river played at film at lincoln center this year Mm. it was a nice 4k restoration what was that like it was great it was great i mean um i think this is my second film of his and yeah it was was a good time Uh, this main character shao kang as you know uh has a little bit of a neck injury Um, and i was like we just i just sat there for like two hours and me like can we get this guy a neck brace please (laughs) like seriously like bro where the neck brace is going to be okay, but let's let's talk about the film. Yeah, well, what well, time is it there? Sure, but actually, the last thing I was going to say about the river is that it had a similar effect on me uh, as Jaws did to so many people in 1975, where I didn't want to go anywhere near the water after watching that movie. Like, oof. <laughs> um, but yeah, what time is it there? Uh, I do find it a little difficult to talk about Psy, uh, as with a lot of slow cinema masters, uh, especially as his work becomes less cinematic and more of an art installation. But I chose this one for a number of reasons. Um, it's, It's able to balance so much without ever feeling strained or even drawing the viewer's eye to the camera or using storytelling devices that the viewer, especially one like me, used to Hollywood narratives or editing patterns, might assume is just inherent in all cinema. And Sai has made his career of reducing those devices uh, to their common denominator, and it usually hits me personally like a ton of bricks. In this film, uh, Sai's muse, Li Kang-shang, is playing a street vendor whose father has just died and whose mother is convinced that she can somehow bring back her late husband, uh, who she believes is trying to communicate with them still. Um, and Shao Kang, uh, Li's character, meets Shang Che, uh, a young woman at his vendor stand, and she convinces him to sell her uh, his personal watch. And from that point, it follows both of those characters, him in Taiwan and her in Paris. Uh, He argues with his mother as she progressively 
loses her grasp on reality, or so we think, uh, becoming hysterical and violent towards any acceptance of her husband's death. Um, and Shang Che uh, in Paris visits a cemetery uh, where she has an encounter with Jean-Pierre Lode. Um, and I won't reveal the final shot of the film because I think it has to be seen to be believed, but it just impacted me so strongly. And maybe this was the best movie that I watched this year for the first time. Um, I, I really can't recommend Sai enough. I think he's one of the greatest living filmmakers. Yeah, I, I think he's incredible. You want to hear something funny, though? I have a friend uh, named Dennis from Taiwan, and he obviously adores the Taiwanese New Wave movement and uh, the second new wave of Taiwanese cinema. But we saw we saw the river together and uh, we walk out and, you know, the river's a bit of a tough movie. And especially, you know, with slow cinema, if that's not your cup of tea, you it might not be your thing but my friend Dennis turns to me and said that after the river started a sort of cinematic rebellion against the Taiwanese new wave and second new wave movement from other people within Taiwan and that's why you see a lot of Taiwanese Hollywood type movies action films horror films you know as just like kind of more commercially blockbuster oriented oh i didn't know Um, that yeah (laughs) you know um similarly to how like william friedkin's film cruising is considered like one of the last new hollywood films it was released the first uh the same weekend as return of the jedi from or empire strikes back Mm -hmm. empire strikes back and so so yeah my friend dennis said that the river uh kind of was the sort of start of a rebellion against that type of filmmaking. Wait, so did Friedkin run two different movies against Star Wars? Because I know he, Sorcerer, got totally blanketed by all of the hype for A New Hope, but I didn't know that that happened to him twice. That That's so yes, sad. Yes, it happened twice, oh, yeah. And, and, and they kind of, again, as we sort of explain timelines of things, Cruising is considered one of the films that's the end of the new Hollywood movement. Oh boy. Um, this idea of adult oriented complex plots, not digestible characters. Yeah. And so Psy had that with the river a bit, but obviously still continues to make masterful films and is still adored in Taiwan still adored in critic circles across the country. Right. What's your third movie? Okay, my third movie, I'm going to go with 40 Guns by Ooh. Samuel Fuller. Love Fuller. Um, this, yeah, Fuller is great. 40 Guns stars Barbara Stanwyck, and it is absolutely insane. Um, I'm hesitant to use this phrase a lot, but I think it's an example of just pure cinema. And I don't know if just making things insane makes something pure cinema, <laughs> but it's shot in widescreen. Um, and it's one of the early films used widescreen format. So there's a lot of great use of space. It's set in Tombstone, Arizona. Go figure. It's a <laughs> Western. 
Um, and Barbara Stanwyck kind of plays this leader of a posse that kind of runs the town of Tombstone, Arizona, and a new sheriff moves into town and he's trying to arrest Barbara Stanwyck's brother. And the sort of sheriff uh, officer type guy uh, strikes up a romantic relationship with uh, Barbara Stanwyck and that kind of complicates things as they do in a Hollywood Western. And so, yeah, I think this film has so many crazy, uh, insane ideas packed within 80 minutes. And there's this tornado scene. There's a note passing sequence where the camera, a note is being passed and the camera pans through all of the people who are passing the note to Barbara Stanwyck to read. And it's just like, I'm in a widescreen film. This is <laughs> this is about as lengthy of a shot as you can get, uh, and an expansive shot on the screen. Um, so tornado sequence, note passing sequence, and then you know at the beginning of the film, there's a great kind of showdown scene uh, between Barbara Stanwyck's brother and the sheriff who comes to town, and again. Uh, more great use of space of cutting it's just so many cool ideas crammed in 80 minutes and and so much fun number three for me uh is ordette from 1955 uh carl dreyer this one uh, i watched while reading paul schrader's book transcendental cinema it's it's one of the primary examples of his very touchy and specific definition of the term um which can still be a little difficult to grasp but in addition to this this movie being a part of the cinematic canon uh and just one of my biggest blind spots a very religious family three sons all with very different beliefs uh the eldest son shares his father's faith in God. Uh, the youngest son has lost his faith, is disimpassioned with the church uh, as his wife is about to give birth. And the middle son believes that he is literally Jesus. And for much of the movie, the conversations that the characters have about uh, this character of Johannes uh, is that he has lost his mind and gone insane and they're fighting even to be able to keep him in the family's home um and not have to like put him away the story of the movie Mikkel's the the youngest son's wife uh Inger suffers a difficult childbirth uh which tests the beliefs of the entire family there's a confrontation with another family uh the Petersons and then finally, the crux of the film becomes centered around a literal resurrection. Uh, and this is actually why I included Ordet on my list, because everything was telling me that this really shouldn't work at all just for me personally. And yet it's one of the most stunning moments like in all of cinema. And why without, wouldn't it work for you? Well, without getting into my own like religious beliefs, like a lot of movies like this just don't generally do it for me. Um, even Martin Scorsese's uh, Christian films, like as much as I admire them, they're kind of my least favorite of his. 
And what? Like, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hot take. Sometimes I have a tougher time with like Bergman's philosophical religious questions. Like I just walk away like feeling a little bit cold. Like it's just a personal thing. Um, but like I, I didn't feel that at all here. And I feel like Dreyer achieved something miraculous and Ordet went a long way as well towards making Schrader's uh, transcendental cinema thesis a little bit more um, tangible for me as well. But yeah, I just, I really love this movie. Did it help you get in touch with your own inner Christianity? Not quite, but hey, almost. I did give <laughs> it five stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. You know, I saw Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ in theaters in college, just like the local art house cinema had a um a restoration of it or a print. I don't even know, but went to see it with some friends and the credits rolled and we just turned and looked at each other and we're like, Are we Catholic again? <laughs> Should we go to church on Sunday? Needless to say, we were huge, huge fans. No, I get it, man. Like, I feel like if I had experienced, especially those last, like, five, ten minutes of that movie, like, in an actual cinema, it might have been a more religious experience for me, even. But, like, I've seen Silence now twice, and, like, it's an incredible film, but, like... God, it's just, it's such a tough watch. And for someone not, doesn't have that personal connection to the text and to the faith, like that last shot in particular, like if I was a Christian, that would be my favorite movie ever. But it just doesn't quite have that like significance for me. It just seems like a man with an impeccable will um, and unbroken faith in the face of torture and abuse uh throughout his entire life uh so like i feel like that is incredibly admirable in its own but like i don't feel any spiritual connection to that and i kind of did with ordet and like that really surprised me so i had to put it on the list love that love that i saw a day of wrath this year at anthology film archives i watched that one too um, yeah about uh that one's about rich witchcraft yep um and that 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 showed an anthology part of their essential cinema series i, I love i'm a huge dryer guy so i'm glad you finally uh caught or debt yeah 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 i got uh day of wrath or debt and gertrude and uh, i liked all three but or was um really unbelievable for me what's your fourth movie okay so a uh, fourth movie on this list I'm going to go with The War Game, by uh, directed by Peter Watkins in the UK. It's a, a documentary drama. Basically, it's kind of like a news documentary or um, a old-fashioned 1950s, 60s public interest piece. Um, and it's shot stylistically in that style. So it's not, it's choices that the director Peter Watkins is making uh, and exploring his subject. And again, this film is very similar to Third World, Third World War in that I would define it as towards an imperfect cinema again, where you're taking a topic and teaching people about it and preaching about it. And this film, The War Game by Peter Watkins, is uh, a exploration and in diving into what would happen if Kent England 
were to be hit by an atomic bomb. Um, It is shot with community members of Kent, England. It uh, is, you know, I wouldn't say it's improv, obviously, but it's kind of he's creating big scenarios, sweeping scenarios with tons and tons of actors who've all volunteered to be a part of the film. And basically what it does is it explores the buildup, the bombing, and they fall out of a nuclear missile or several. And, uh, oh yeah, there's a game called Fallout. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and what it does is that the film, so not only does it explore the bill of the bombing and the fallout, it does these things by seeing it through a lens of the physical impacts, the psychological, and the sociological. So the entire community of Kent, England, I'm going to say the entire community, there's just so many people involved that just feels like the whole community was in on it, reenacting all these different impacts, physical, psychological, sociological, with a narrator narrating over it. And so the question is, how does Peter Watkins know what happens when someone gets nuked? We don't know. Well, actually... We do know because the United States dropped a nuclear bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and Peter Watkins used testimony from Nagasaki and Hiroshima victims, um, politicians, uh, just the entire chain of society and also testimony from the Dresden firebombings in Germany. Um, so it's a incredibly harrowing film. It's a film that if you watch... Uh, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on nuclear conflicts and having nuclear bombs in a country's arsenal uh, after watching this film. Again, it's this call to disarm uh, completely and a call for peace. It's horrific. It was filmed for the BBC and the BBC dropped it and banned it for several years. They just thought it was too real for the public, but it did win the Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary in 1966-67. I think it was 67 the awards took place, but for the film year of 1966. So you liked it better than Oppenheimer? Uh, Probably, yeah. (laughs) I liked it better than Oppenheimer. Fair enough, man. Yeah, um, maybe. I don't know. Oppenheimer's real good. We'll get to Oppenheimer. Yes, we will. We'll get to it next week. Um, I guess. All right, I, what's your fourth film? Number four for me is Hu Shen's Millennium Mambo. And Let's go. I'm noticing a trend on my list. Uh, a lot of these movies have one unforgettable sequence that has permanently branded itself onto my brain. And in Millennium Mambo, uh, it's the two-minute opening, a tracking shot that follows... Vicky, the protagonist of the movie, as she walks down this beautifully lit bridge and staircase as narration recites dialogue that we end up hearing again in the film. And it's kind of difficult for me to articulate why I find this so major. So I'm only going to do this once, but I implore any and all Mudville listeners to search Millennium Mambo opening on YouTube and see for yourself exactly what I'm talking about, because it's truly something you have to see to believe. 
you know, it's a screening at Metrograph right now as we speak. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to go see that, I think. There was a 9 p.m. screening, but we're recording this podcast for the people. Yes, we so, are. We got to so make you, it happen. You, you spent a lot of time with the Taiwanese New Wave this year, would you say? I think, yeah, I, I would say I did. I had already been a huge um, Edward Yang fan coming into this year but i definitely you know like i said um fell way more in love with Psy than i had been before and uh this is regrettably the only uh hu shao shen film that i've seen but i will certainly rectify that in in 2024 a lot of this film is a pretty tough watch as the first hour depicts the claustrophobia of an abusive relationship in a way that just like makes you want to pull your hair out the movie shows the end of vicky's relationship uh with how how and her subsequent journey with jack a gentle older man who she meets uh who acts as sort of an antithesis to the malevolent sociopath that she's with for so much of the movie um and as blown away as i was by whose filmmaking uh i was equally affected by just what a piece of shit that character is like the scene where he's following her around their shoebox apartment and not letting her have an inch of space to herself is just agonizing to watch. Like, um, and you know, like you, like you say, um, the use of space in that scene too just feels so masterfully coordinated. Where you know you're just you feel like you're in her shoes and you feel like you can't move and that you just have this thing draped all over you that you can't get get rid of and i really it's something that I've, I've never really experienced in any other movie but i found it to be very incredible what's your number five all right my number five is a film called fucking amal Ooh. or uh alternative title show me love it's directed by lucas moodyson uh, from Sweden. It's a Swedish film. And I caught this at Spectacle Cinema, it, which is a micro cinema in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, and it was part of a series of films that they did coinciding with the film critic Kyle Turner, who just released a book this year or so called The Queer Film Guide. And uh, Show Me Love or Fucking Amal is uh, a coming of age film a amal is a bumfuck town in northern sweden and uh you know it just gets into the weeds about how hard and also funny it is to be a teenager how brutal it is the extremes of hormones not knowing what you want or who you want to be with in your life and uh but also there are some people who do know what they want what's it like if you start to realize and get to know yourself more what if that's what you want too so it's so beautiful so funny i don't think i've laughed harder at a film uh this year and there's an all-time electric kissing scene uh to the song i want to know what love is i want I you want... to show me yeah, who sings that? I don't even know. Uh, bon Jovi, maybe. No, it isn't. Really, is it? Um, Foreigner. Oh shit! Okay, Foreigner. I, I was it's wrong. Awesome. That's okay. <laughs> this isn't a classic rock podcast. No, sorry, dads. <laughs> Nonetheless, sorry, Jovi heads. 
sorry, what, what, my, my fifth one, um, I went with uh, Terrence Davies' The Long Day Closes. I hear the cottonwoods whispering above, Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love from 1992 um this is one of davy's more autobiographical films about his upbringing in england uh that came out in the early 90s i know you've got another one of them coming up so uh you maybe you've got something to add about this movie as well but um it it follows around uh the main character bud a 10 year old boy who has a bit of a tough home life uh he gets bullied at school uh and he spends much of his time uh at the local cinema watching as many films as he can, as I suspect Terrence Davies did when he was a young lad. You know, keeping up with my my trend here of one particular sequence that just stuck in my head and really changed my perception of what a movie can be uh, is the two-minute series of match cuts, I guess, if that's what you want to call them, set to uh, Debbie Reynolds' Tammy, which starts with a shot of Bud swinging from... like a pipe on a staircase and turns into this series of overhead shots connecting other buildings around the town, like in the school and in the church. And he's able to match these up so they look like they're symmetrical. That did something in, in my brain, seeing that, that series. And I watched that sequence over and over. So I had to throw it on my list, you know? But you know what? I'm just going to piggyback off... Um, your film because yeah, do it. R.I.P. Terrence Davies. Yes, he passed away a couple months ago. Um, it's very sad. Yeah, and so uh, another film on my list is uh, Distant Voices Still Lives, and that is uh, the debut film of Terrence Davies, I believe. I think so. I think that was his first, and this is the, the second, the one that I picked. Which, like, what an absolutely bold and mature film for a debut feature there's a terence davy trilogy that he did before but this is like his it's anthology of shorts so this is his first feature-length film and why this film was sort of on my list is for two reasons well the film is about this uh semi-autobiographical family uh, the davies family terrence davies there doesn't seem to be someone who is terrence per se uh and the family seems to be an amalgamation of a bunch of his siblings and then his parents um and it's a working class blue collar family in Liverpool, England, post-World War II. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me as an audience member was just in a personal way. Um, my grandmother was part of the greatest generation, and she would talk all the time about her upbringing and growing up and being in her 20s and in America. But even though this film took place in England, it felt like it could have taken place in America as well. And she would go out to the bars and she would be singing with her friends. They'd be singing the latest standards of the day. And this isn't karaoke either. Sometimes they'd have song sheets. Other times they just have to memorize the song from 
listening to it on the Victrola or hearing it on the radio every week. So those kind of beautiful moments of connectivity and socialization amongst brutal constraints and trauma uh, was something that really connected with me uh, and made me think of my grandmother. Another thing uh, about this film uh, that struck me is, have we changed much in society at all with our social media and our so-called connectiveness? Um, it kind of explores, Distant Voices Still Lives kind of explores um, the patriarchal family and how even people once you start having children you and get married have children you just kind of drift away from your friends and you kind of become in a sort of bubble with your family because you got to raise your kids and you don't really have time for a social life or to connect with each other and that was something that i think is also similar to today more responsibilities it doesn't matter how close or far away you live from someone you just don't see them that often there's this great line where um character's name who is the best friend in the film and her name is doreen yes it's doreen and she says to the main character i think she says it to Maisie. she says hey you should come by and visit us we're only 10 minutes away and the main character one of the main characters Maisie davis is just like yeah thanks but nah like mm -hmm. catch you when the next person dies or gets married or something happens in the town or something or like a holiday um and so that was like really depressing to me um because That's devastating it was it was a devastating response that sort of to me transcends time and that we haven't changed and that we do drift apart that's sort of a natural occurrence no matter how connected we may feel we could also be all extremely disconnected back then in the 50s and even now today something else about that movie too is uh i never realized how much british families in the 1950s love to sing like they are singing in every other scene in that movie. And it's like, it gave me a, a newfound uh, appreciation for the Beatles because it gave Liverpool something to listen to that wasn't this. And the Lord knows when we'll be together again. We're all together again, so here we are. And the world to start all over, back in the old routine. If we sound a little different moving forward, it's because we recorded the, the first half of this over Zoom and then we're doing the second half a couple days later and tony is now over in the apartment so if it's a little different uh that's why but we're back i actually have a very funny disclaimer uh when we recorded the first half of this episode i had not yet met matt farley is he every bit as legendary as the title suggests and every bit as local 
but very cool guy. Uh, I Maybe people will have, have heard that the episode already by the time we drop this one. But yeah, I mean, when I was recording that, that segment, you know, I was not yet talking about my friend's movie, but now I feel like I am. That's just a little funny. It's a very interesting timing for that to have happened. So just kind of a pretty uh, singular disclaimer there on that one but yeah local legends uh only only further up on my list now that i've met matt he's an incredible guy and uh wish him the best of luck with all of his 2024 movies and beyond what is my sixth movie on my list of top 10 first watches of 2023 what movie is it? It is La Ceremonie from 1995 by Claude Chabrol, one of the founders of the French New Wave. Uh, and this was actually the first and to date the only one of his films that I've seen. And I absolutely loved it. This is a film that asks the question, could Isabelle Huppert make me kill my employer? And the answer is a resounding yes. This is the story of Sophie, an illiterate young woman taken in by a rich family to be their maid, and the pervasive influence of a postal employee uh, played by Isabelle Huppert. Uh, it's based on a real-life case, actually, of a maid who killed her employer's family in the 30s, but I didn't know that when I was watching. I thought it was just, like, ahead of its time and probably a huge influence on Parasite. This is a movie where it starts to be a lot about how Sophie is hiding her illiteracy in the face of this social dynamic that is created by the fact that these rich people are paying her to watch their house and to take care of their family um and the fact that you know that creates feelings for her of um inherent inferiority um and then the second half of the movie it becomes more and more about her relationship with jean the uh, postal worker and it makes reference to both characters violent pasts as well uh, we learn that Sophie either killed her disabled father or let him die in a house fire that she may or may not have started herself also Isabel Huppert had been on trial uh, for killing her four-year-old child but uh, was acquitted and it was revealed to be an accident or whatever and you know the movie of course treats that as very suspect as it should and ultimately as as it moves forward and uh, heads towards its climax it has a lot to say about class and uh, becomes a very scathing satire and uh, Chabrol called it the last Marxist film however you want to interpret that his own Marxist films or the last Marxist films ever just the last one period wow <laughs> yeah I guess he didn't know about Raoul Peck. I guess not. I also don't know about Raoul Peck, just to be clear. but <laughs> He had the, the James Baldwin documentary, I'm Not oh, Your Negro. Sure. Okay. And then he has um, uh, the young Karl Marx and the HBO miniseries Exterminate the Brutes. Ooh. All very left-wing communist stuff, but... Well, take that, Chabrol. But take that, Chabrol. <laughs> no, totally. Um, you and, dead bitch. And, you know, but I, I just wanted to say we can't talk about Chabrol without mentioning his glasses. Mm -hmm. And I think, hands down, he's one of the most personally personable uh, 
the best facial expressions of the French New Wave filmmakers. Sure. You Google a photo of Claude Chabrol, and he's making some of the most expressive faces you could possibly see, always having a good time and living life to the max. (laughs) Well, hell yeah, man. Good for Chabrol, one of the kings of the new wave. You got to always pay your respects to all of those guys, whether it be Godard or Truffaut or Chabrol or uh, Romare or um, Rivette, the big five, as it were. R.I.P. They're all dead. Oh, God, that's brutal. R.I.P. The French new wave. I guess it's the old wave now. It's the old wave now. What's your seventh movie? All right. My seventh movie is Nothing But a Man by Michael Romer. It's a film from the 1960s. Takes place in the 60s, Anderson. And it's about his struggle uh, in his life, relationships, and work in the racist Alabama Jim Crow South. Heartbreaking, tender film. And I want to shout out Michael Romer, who's kind of had a bit of a critical renaissance in the past few years because he has had a few restorations of his films. Vengeance is Mine, which was a restoration, like uh, it was Nothing But a Man ret- uh, restoration. And uh, his other film uh, was called The Plot Against Harry. And, you know, why this film is significant is Michael Romer is 95 years old. He's still alive, the oh, director, wow. still kicking it. He is a... Uh, he was born in 1928 in Berlin, Germany, and he's Jewish. Oh, shit. Um, so he was part of the kinder transport that tr- transported Jewish kids out of Germany during Nazi Germany. Um, and so he grew up in England and then moved to the United States. And so because of this, the the film is pretty much an all-black film, um, uh, characters, and, he, you know, Michael Romer wrote the screenplay. Um, and obviously there's a, from a critical standpoint, there's a shared common struggle that Romer obviously has um, being a Jewish man, Jewish child in Nazi Germany and the struggle of black people in the Jim Crow South. And uh, to sort of talk about that as well as with the plot against Harry, um, it's the plot against Harry kind of explores Jewish life in 1960s New York City. Uh, Harry's a mobster and uh, he's from Eastern European Ashkenazi Judaism oh, wow. ancestry. Um, and so, again, Romer pointed out at the Q&A that he is not Ashkenazi Jewish either. He's from, he's German Jewish. Um, and so he doesn't really have anything in common. Well, he does have things in common, but he, he, is, he is neither of his subjects in both of his movies, The Plot Against Harry and Nothing But a Man. And, uh, but... Uh, through the shared struggle that he has with these two communities that he made films about, uh, his work kind of becomes uh, what I think is a reporting on the struggles and lives of the people in uh, the African-American community in the Jim Crow South. So uh, Nothing But a Man, uh, it is quite the powerful film. Wow. And uh, highly recommend Michael Romer. Movie number seven for me, uh, Sideways. 2004, Alexander Payne. Let's go. Uh, talking about, yeah, this is one of the more recent movies on the list for sure. Uh, sideways, man, it, it's just a fucking banger. It's a hard grape to grow, as you know, right? It's, uh, it's thin skin, temperamental, ripens early. 
it's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and uh, thrive even when it's neglected. And this is your first time seeing it this year? It, yeah, and in fact, I'm, I'm very surprised I had not seen this until the past few months. Uh, I actually got turned on to it by the Extended Clip podcast, uh, and then we had Eddie Averill on to discuss another pain film, Election. So if you have not heard that episode yet, please go do that. That was, that was a really fun conversation. We had a great time with that. But Sideways... Wait, can I just say something real quick yeah. before we get into Sideways? So Sideways is kind of a very popular movie from the 2000s. And if you're still listening to this podcast, I love that this film is on the list because there's so many films that I myself have never seen that you, Nolan, have never seen. And uh, it's okay to not have seen <laughs> films that were popular back in the day, that are popular now. Sometimes you just don't get around to it. And sometimes it's a beautiful thing to have not seen it until you reach a certain age. I completely so, agree. Um, you know, Sideways is is a fantastic film, and I can't wait to hear you talk about it. And Sideways is also, I think, a, a film that, like, had I watched it when I was, like, 18 or 19, it would not have hit as hard as it did for me today. So I think in, in many cases, it's even uh, advantageous to, you know, wait until you're uh, ready or, like, mature enough to watch a movie and i know that that's kind of a difficult thing to gauge so like i i don't know how you know how you can kind of play that in practice it's just something sort of to to keep in mind like if you're thinking of oh no i haven't seen this movie or you feel like y'all have like tons of blind spots but also like it might even be for the best and so this film sideways uh paul giamatti is one of our best American actors. If you saw The Holdovers, another pain film, you would know what I mean. But 20 years before that one, they made this movie a uh, road trip buddy film with Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church as they drink and drive all over the country. And Jack, uh, the Hayden Church character, successfully has an affair with Stephanie played by Sandra Oh, and Miles, the uh, Giamatti character, develops feelings for Maya, played by Virginia Madsen. And those scenes in particular between Giamatti and Madsen, like, they have such uncomfortable and perfect chemistry, and it's just horrifyingly human. And, like, the, the quartet of the lead performances in that role, the two men and the two women, like, are all just truly fantastic. And uh, the movie wouldn't work nearly as well were they not all at the top of their game. And this also showed a different side for me of Alexander Payne as well. Like, I had only seen... Uh, election up to this point i believe and i foolishly kind of judged downsizing when it came out without actually watching the movie so like i'll eat some crow on that one i still have to see it and i'll watch it with an open mind now but you know like between this and the holdovers pain directed some of the absolute best stuff that i watched this year and i've certainly come around on the case to see him as one of the great american auteurs of the past like 25 years which pain films have you watched this year uh, so election I rewatched for the pod, uh, sideways, of course, I watched for the first time. Uh, I watched about Schmidt and, uh, the holdovers when it came out. Have you seen the descendants? Yet? Not yet. Okay. Did you see Nebraska? No. Yeah. He, I, I was just reviewing his filmography and it's yeah. just, you know, so many bangers. Those are next for me. No doubt. 
I certainly need to watch those next. But hey, more blind spots and more stuff to look forward to in 2024. Yeah, one more note about Sideways. Sure. It's a movie that my mother loves. Shout out to my mother, Colleen. Mm-hmm. Um, a classic line in this film, uh, I will not drink fucking Merlot, Yep. Um, is... If they have Merlot, I'm leaving. I will not drink fucking Merlot. And it's it's one of the great lines in cinema. And with just a swift writing of the pen or the typewriter keyboards, Alexander Payne put a dent in the entire industry of wine of Merlot. To this day, my mother still does not serve Merlot in the house. And wow. she was drinking it before she saw Sideways. And she said, <laughs> all right, it's gone. Giamatti said so. Yeah, so. shit. The authority figure said it's trash, so it's it, it's out of my rotation. I feel that, man. Don't tell me cinema has no power. <laughs> power over the culture. Yep. What's next for you? All right, so what's next for me is uh, Somewhere, uh, directed by Sofia Coppola. You're really good. Thanks. When did you learn how to ice skate? I've been going for three years. Really? Is that the same SUV? There's kind of a lot of those in LA. Yeah, but I think that's the same one. I've seen it. What are you doing? I'm taking down the plates. Nice. Good thinking. This was uh, added to the MoMA collection this year uh, for film. So there's a print now of this in uh, MoMA's film archives. And so I went to one of the screenings there. Uh, The actor Stephen Dorff uh, plays Johnny Marco, an action star. Film is kind of a dive into the craziness, surrealness, and hollowness of fame. Um, who, and who better to explore that than Sofia Coppola, whose father is Francis Ford Coppola of the great Coppola family, uh, Nicolas Cage. I mean, you know, Sofia grew up around celebrities in Hollywood. So, I mean, there couldn't be a better person to uh, explore um, those kinds of themes. I mean, you know, you watch this character kind of have an existential crisis, slowly realizing what exactly his life is and whether or not it has any meaning. And, you know, just everything in this character's life is completely taken care of. And then on top of that, he's just so goddamn wealthy because of his films Um, and everything from his food, his clothes, transportation, pretty much to even the women because he's so goddamn attractive, like he could just literally sleep with anybody. So, um, you know, it's a slow burn of a film uh, that's still like 90 minutes, but uh, it, the payoff is fabulous. And I just also want to talk about a cinema memory I had at this screening. I just want to shout out the dickhead audience member uh, <laughs> who was a total snitch in the audience. So before the film started, someone, which was their job, said that there's no food or eating in the cinema at MoMA. Totally cool. That's their job. And then, you know, we're about... 20 minutes into the movie and you just hear this old lady saying you're not supposed to be eating in here so loud to whatever poor audience members just trying to have a little bit of a snack and catch a soul the couple of movie man so it 
killed the vibes of everybody in the space. And uh, don't snitch on your audience, fellow audience members, okay? That's just something I wanted to throw out there. But yes. The feds were out at the Copal screening. Shit. I man. know. It was yeah. crazy. And then Damn. so she snitched, and then the person who was like the usher working there then shouted on top of that. Was like, oh there's God. no food or drink allowed in here. Please put it away. And it's just like, and the movie's like playing. And it's like, what are we doing here? Oh, my God. You know, but yeah, so, so don't snitch on your fellow audience members, people. But it didn't ruin the movie. It's still a top 10 favorite of mine. I really dig Sofia Coppola's work. And this one might be my favorite. 1991. Let's go. The, certainly the most famous movie on the list. Stone's... Uh, dissertation refutation of the what was the received wisdom of the kennedy assassination to start the movie after he's already dead and to have the entire thing about uh jim garrison is that the man's name jim garrison kevin costner character who sort of talks like foghorn leghorn uh, for all three plus hours of this movie, including an incredible 30 minute monologue at the end in which he just goes start to finish taking down the entire Kennedy assassination theory. And it um, it blew my mind. And I I'm not sure that this movie has an equal in the American cinema. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there has ever been that there's ever been so much money and so much high-profile Hollywood talent put to a movie like this, you know, made to uh, refute the story of the assassination of one of the most popular presidents in uh, American history, certainly at the time, and also to um, stir the theory that the uh, assassination was a conspiracy by the CIA and the military-industrial complex to uh, try to destroy Cuba and create basically the world in which we've lived in the 30 years since this movie came out. So it, it's an, it's certainly an experience watching it, you know, 32 years after its release. You know, I, I haven't seen all of Oliver Stone's movies, but this one feels like it's the uh, definitive one to me for sure. And um, really, this is lightning in a bottle if there's any flaw you know perhaps it's a little bit too journalistic but like that just kind of makes me think of you know what you were talking about with the towards an imperfect cinema like i don't know this is a singular movie and i'm not sure anything like it will ever be made again and i think it should be required viewing in every american history class yeah, I think it should be a required history too. And just to talk about the impact of this film, upon its release, the government started having hearings, Congress, and on the film, and it is uh, credited for the passage of the President John F. Kennedy Assassin- Assassination Records Collection Act. And basically, it's an act kind of uh going it's taking in copies of everything having to do with uh the john f kennedy assassination going through them and then declassifying them we've started to see more and more declassifications in the last few years and i think it's almost done and it was through this act in in 1992 you know 
I'm, I'm trying to think of like other works of art that had this kind of impact on on a governing body and it's so immediate and in 1992 um, I'm coming up blank the only other comparable thing I can think of is Upton Sinclair's The Jungle sure um, and that was with uh, Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. and he read The Jungle and then he was like went to his administration his cabinet he's just like the fuck is this true <laughs> and they were like uh pretty much <laughs> and then he's like uh we gotta put in some rules here you know um so yeah uh, unbelievable film jfk did you see joe biden had a similar experience watching top gun maverick this year <laughs> <laughs> no what was that i don't en- entirely remember so you'll have to forgive me for even bringing it up but it was like he saw the movie and he was like no, we gotta we gotta help these like fighter pilots take down Iran or some shit. And it was like, dude, why why is this our president? Like, <laughs> good lord, good lord. But yeah, and uh, further viewing too. Uh, Oliver Stone uh, came out with a documentary in 2021. I believe it's on Showtime. It's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Um, I prefer the film. Uh, but this kind of adds some extra pieces to the puzzle, and it's a documentary. Um, there's like a two-hour version, and I believe there's a four-hour extended version, and I recommend the extended version, obviously, because I think it covers a lot more. And the two-hour one felt a little rushed. So, sure. yeah, shout-out Oliver Stone. Shout-out JFK. Shout-out you, Nolan, for adding this to the list because it is a must-see Shout-out to you as well, Tony, just because. Thank um, you. Why don't you do number nine? Yeah, so uh, number nine, I got all that jazz. Hell yeah. Bob Fosse. I think this is America's eight and a half. And for those of you who don't know, eight and a half is a film by the great... Italian maestro Federico Fellini and it's kind of like a metafictional film that plays on Fellini kind of having a little bit of a writer's block and uh, it's sort of a reflection on Fellini's life and who he is as a person and the films that he's made up to that point and so eight and a half is the reference to the amount of films that he'd made at that time. So it's eight films and one short film. And so bringing that back to all that jazz is very much in a similar way, a loosely autobiographical film about Bob Fosse himself with Roy Scheider uh, in the titular role of all that jazz. And uh, the character's name is Joe Gideon. To be on the wire is life. The rest is waiting. That's very theatrical, Joe. Yeah, I know. Did you make it up? I wish I had. You like it? Well, it's all right. It's showtime, folks. And it kind of goes through the life of Joe Gideon up to that point. Uh... The musicals that he's directing, it's kind of like he's at the height of his fame. He's directing another musical on Broadway. Uh, He's in post-production for a film called The Comedian, which is actually the Lenny Bruce film that Bob Fosse directed, Lenny. So you're seeing kind of like references to Lenny Bruce, the Lenny Bruce film. 
the title All That Jazz is in reference to the line of Chicago, the musical. And so, you know, it very much is a sort of like auto fiction account of Bob Fosse's life. Uh, and his life as a choreographer and now director is an insane and taxing life. Um, the film goes into his life, career, his relationships with women, uh, with his children, with other actors. Um, it's a brutally honest film. Uh, Bob Fosse uh, essentially cancels himself in the film. There's uh, scenes where he's sexually assaulting nurses who are uh, aiding, attending to him uh, in the hospital because he's had a heart attack. You know, I do appreciate raw honesty. I don't think it necessarily absolves him. Like it says, I think it cancels himself before people knew what canceling was sure. in 19... <laughs> Uh, 81, whenever this film came out. So 79, 80, 81. Um, and so, you know, there's that brutally honest depiction and knowing shit's going to hit the fan. And that's essentially what actually happened to Bob Fosse. He dies pretty much in a similar way that he kind of anticipated uh, having a heart attack mm. several years after the film was released. So, yeah, it's a great film. It's America's... Eight and a half, all that jazz. The dance numbers are fantastic. The performances, the performance by Roy Scheider is uh, unbelievable. And uh, also shout out Ben Vereen, mm -hmm. too, who was also a collaborator with Bob Fosse. He was in Pippin, famously. Ooh. So uh, the musical. So then he comes back and he's in all that jazz. So yeah, what's your next film? So okay, number nine for me is actually a, a two-way tie. This is a split entry between two um, Brian De Palma films. This is because De Palma for me leapt into my personal stratosphere in terms of directors whose work I just personally have connected with and I really came to uh, appreciate him in a new light and that was largely because of these two films which are Phantom of the Paradise and Body Double uh, and I briefly talked about Phantom of the Paradise on I believe episode 30 uh, after I had just watched it when it was fresh on the brain I made the case for it to possibly have the most compelling five opening minutes of, of any movie I had seen in, in quite a long time. And uh, I showed it to Brody through that lens. He was washing the dishes and I was like, dude, check out the first five minutes of this movie. And he just like, his eyes were just glued to it. And it's, it's so mesmerizing because it starts with this like ominous opening of like, this is the tale of what this, this movie is. And then it goes straight into this, uh, juicy fruits performance of this like you know 50s uh sort of doo-wop song that they're singing and it's the choreography and it's phenomenal and it's just like you drop everything to watch it and it really holds your attention through the entire movie like the musical performances in this are just unforgettable like there's an amazing performance from uh i'm forgetting the actress's name so i have to look it up the actress jessica harper yeah there's an amazing uh, jessica harper performance like halfway through the movie as she is uh, auditioning for the show, which is when uh, the Phantom sees her and realizes that she is the only one who can perform his, his music. It's based on both uh, Phantom of the Opera and uh, Faust, which is very interesting. Just like, that's a crazy concept for a movie, like especially for a guy like De Palma, who at that point in his career, he's like, you know, and I want to carve out 
time and make this. And uh, I, I think that's just so interesting. And um, Is there anybody better than William Finley who plays the Phantom in this film? He has so much charisma, and it's just like whenever I see him on the screen, yep. it's just like my whole being, mind, and spirit just gravitates towards him. He's so good. He's just got such a like 70s face, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I just want to shout out uh, another film mm-hmm. of his with Brian De Palma. Dionysus in 69 if you've ever seen it I uh, it's very early De Palma it's uh, a adaptation of the Bacchae by the performance group which was uh, Richard Schechner who's a famous experimental theater director and uh, the performance group then in history became the Worcester group which is performing as Dionysus uh, in the 1960s in 1969 uh, it's a wild film uh, it's got the classic, the entire film is the classic De Palma two frames simultaneously at once. Mm. And I've yet to see The Phantom Paradise, so I really appreciate You're you bringing gonna this up. You're going to love it, dude. Yeah. And then Body Double 2, uh, eight years later, came out in 84. Uh, it's very much one of De Palma's riffs on Hitchcock, you know, very vertigo Uh, rear window sort of voyeurism type deal like in the movie uh, Craig Wasson is like hired by this guy to watch over his property and you can see from uh, there's like a telescope in his yard which like allows him to watch this woman dancing naked and he thinks that it's Melanie Griffith who then you know comes into the story when he recognizes like her dance in like an adult video and the execution of all of that is just done so well and is like i rewatched vertigo just this past week with my dad and like you know having watched obsession recently and of course body double and like you know de palma has essentially made a career off of like riffing on alfred hitchcock and uh it's it's certainly been a lot of fun for me to sort of go back and look through both of their careers as a way of like retracing steps almost and uh I don't know that that was that's been a lot of fun for me in in 2023. Love the De Palma appearance on the list. Yep. What? Wait. So this is number ten. I'm gonna go with uh, the Wobblies, directed by Deborah Schaefer and Stuart Bird. It's from 1979, and it is a documentary about the Wobblies. And what's great about this film? It is an incredible historical artifact because they are interviewing actual Wobblies, members of the IWW, the people who put their lives and bodies on the line so that we could enjoy the, the eight-hour workday, so that we could uh, have benefits with our work, pensions, you know, you name it. And this is, these are firsthand accounts of the struggle and events that uh, led to better conditions in the uh, workforce. And so it goes into uh, the Lawrence textile strike. Um, it goes into, you know, the lumberjack movements, uh, people working in the great forest in the Pacific Northwest, um, just all interactions with police officers. It's a really good political education by watching this film. Um, and you know, every one of them is a goddamn hero and just the way they see the world and understand the 
the master worker owner worker relationship is just so clear precise they are at the same time open because it's one for all and all for one it's just one big union and at the same time they're committed and won't budge on their beliefs so uh shout out the wobbly stock I think that we have to think about that kind of stuff like all the time, like where labor movements were a hundred years ago and where they are now. And like whenever like a boss tries to say, oh, you know, labor has come so far, like that's true, but also there's so much more to still do. And like it's important to honor the, these people's legacy by continuing to fight further and further to make sure that workers have the rights that they deserve and also to realize that they are the backbone of how everything works and that uh, they have quite a bit more power than they are uh, led to believe. There's power in people. Yep, absolutely. All right, what's your final film? Last one, last movie on the list. We've talked about 20 movies so far today. Woo, thanks for sticking sticking around, Thank everyone. Thank you so much, everybody. I'll try to finish it out strong here. My last entry, Deep Cover, Bill Duke, 1992, one of the best thrillers of the 90s. Lawrence Fishburne, incredible performance as a cop who goes undercover to bust a drug ring and ends up rising to the through the ranks of that drug ring and thus blurring the line between cop and criminal. Jeff Goldblum with... A really sleazy performance as this lawyer in the day and drug dealer at night who like just shows up and says he represents Fishburne and then gets involved in all of his schemes. Uh, There's an amazing scene about halfway through the movie where Goldblum is disrespected by one of the like mid-level guys that Larry Fishburne was sent to catch and Goldblum's response and revenge one is just depicted so well by Bill Duke like it feels so human and like you understand the reaction to want to get back at this guy for having disrespected him like that and also it throws the entire plan into disarray I said it before but it's lightning in a bottle in one of the best thrillers in the 90s it looks beautiful Fishburne and uh, Goldblum have amazing chemistry with one another uh, and it ends up being a very poignant uh, how American politicians have acted uh, with malicious intent to destroy communities of color and uh, perpetuate a cycle of death um, and it's it's done through this really beautiful and uh, intense thriller that uh, really is worth the time of, of anybody to, to go see. And I believe it's playing on uh, Criterion right now. Love it. Shout out the Criterion channel. You, you know it, man. Well, I think that that's going to do it for us today. We got through all uh, 20 of our movies and I think we did a pr- we think we did them all justice. I really hope you guys have enjoyed this first episode of Mudville at the Movies. We're certainly uh, looking forward to going deeper into this with you and to doing our top 10 of the year next week. Yeah, stick around for our top 10 films of 2023. There's a lot of great films. Great year of cinema to talk about. 
And then once we're done with that, we're going to start going into talking about movies. Damn right we are. Single features. We're going to do double features. We got a lot of cool stuff baking for you all. So if you want to hear all that, you can go check us out. Give us some support to help us keep doing what we do at patreon.com slash mudville. It would really be a huge help. Or just, you know, go give us a nice rating and review on Spotify or Apple or whatever. It, it helps us out algorithmically, I guess. Don't somehow. forget to subscribe. Mm-hmm. Unsubscribe, then subscribe again. Yep. Uh, Gotta do it. Throw up the likes, the hearts. Share us. Share us with, with your, your friends, friends and your family. Send us to your dad. I bet there's some dad movies on our lists. So, yeah, I don't know. Spread the word. Help us out a little bit. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in with us for a long time today, and we hope you have a good one. Happy New Year, folks. <laughs>